The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Let's get to our guest, Joe Doe, Bloomberg Metals and Mining reporter, to discuss this a little bit further. This is just yet another um, obstacle along the way, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, it really is. I think the market has been so focused on the CFIUS review, the review by the uh, inter-government agency that uh, determines whether or not a foreign company is okay to buy a domestic company. But um, our sources today telling us that the administration is looking at the exposure that Nippon has to China, specifically these nine facilities um, that they have in China and the 3.6 million tons of capacity that they have uh, the ability to produce there. So I think that has come up as as another thing that investors maybe uh, sh- are probably going to be looking a little bit closer at. Joe, is this basic steel production when you talk about uh, the facilities in China? Is it, you know, kind of the old school, you, you melt down the iron ore, you <laughs> add the coal and the limestone, or is it something that is more contemporary when I'm thinking of recycled steel and metal being put through an electric furnace? Is it the old school approach that's being used in China? So it's it's actually neither, and it's good that you're nailing down into this. It's it's these downstream products, right? It's like bar and pipe and tube. These are things that um, that end users buy and they put into you know things like oil, you know, oil pipelines or to roads for like the wire rod. Um, so it's not like traditional raw steel making as you think of it. And I think that's another reason that it may raise some eyes, eyebrows for folks, right? It's it's not the kind that a, that a Nucor or U.S. Steel or Cleveland Cliffs has traditionally complained about in the past with trade tariffs, you know, of dumping. Um, but, you know, listen, we, we know how the political climate has been specifically around China for many years now. And for steel, I mean, it goes back for the past 20 years, right? I mean, that's one of the things that we pointed out in our story. There's a long history intertwined here. It gets really complicated because we don't know all that much about these nine sites that uh, that Nippon has there in China, although with just what was put uh, in a note to shareholders uh, that these are part of its global output um, uh, you know, plans. Um, but it, it also raises a very tricky question of, if, is it Nippon steel then? Is it Chinese-produced steel? Uh, you know, is right. the iPhone that sells elsewhere, elsewhere, is that a China product or is it an Apple product? And, you know, how do we put all this stuff together? Right. I mean, Nippon did get back to us and they, they did give us a statement, which I should point out, that they said, you know, our operations in China, including any joint ventures they have with Chinese partners, have no control over their operations or business decisions made outside of China, including in the U.S. So, you know, I think I think that's an interesting point. I think another interesting point is it's 3.6 million tons of capacity in out of the 66 million tons of capacity that the, that Nippon has globally, right? So it's it's a it's a thin percentage of it. Um, so so I, I think just. Just uh, for, just looking at the numbers, it's not immediately obvious that this is necessarily some sort of threat. But I, I guess this is why 
the administration is looking at it, right? They're mm-hmm. wanting to look further into it to see if maybe it does pose some sort of threat or is some sort of issue that they should address. Well, at the same time, I think we have to recognize it is in an election year. Donald Trump has already weighed in on this deal, saying that he would uh, scrap it. And I'm sure that the Biden administration or the Biden campaign would very much like the endorsement from the United Steelworkers, right? Exactly. This this boils down to one very big political issue, which is blue collar workers. Uh, the United Steelworkers have made it clear that they do not support Nippon Steel in this deal. Uh, the United Steelworkers themselves aren't. It's not like they're the big voting block, right? That's going to get one or the other over the finish line. But they represent a very important type of voter in the United States: the blue collar industrial worker. They are also in a battleground state, right? Pennsylvania is the headquarters of U.S. Steel. This is a massive state that helped get Biden over the line in 2020. And the steelworkers and many people like them got Trump over the line in 2016. Both of these guys know what's at stake here. And that's obviously why U.S. Steel being bought by a Japanese company has been thrust into the center of this political dialogue. You mentioned that the Nippon Steel output in China from these nine plants is is reasonably small, 3.6 million tons, I think you said, uh, compared yeah. to uh, you know a massive total globally. Uh, so is that the type of, of, of kind of profile where Nippon Steel would either sell them or dispose of them in some other way in order to get this deal through? Unclear. I mean, Nippon hasn't said anything about that specifically. Um, I mean, if you dig deep into the weeds of all the different documents that have been put out since the deal was announced, you know, it does mention that, uh, you know, uh, if the the company will do what it takes to get this deal closed, I, I don't know if they'll be willing to sell assets. I mean, that that that's a that's a question that we really should find out from them and that they maybe should announce to uh, to shareholders. But at this point, it, it's unclear. And, you know, listen, Nippon gave us the statement that they gave us, um, but it's also not even clear if they've had a conversation with the White House about stuff like this. So there's a lot still going on behind the scenes that I just I think we just don't know. Yeah, I'm wondering about, uh, you know, when you mention national security, let's uh, just hypothetically say that there is a scenario where India's Tata Steel were to make a bid for U.S. Steel. Do you think it would get the same level of scrutiny? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's U.S. Steel. I, this is the way I look at it. It's United States Steel Corporation. And the idea that a company that is not American or any company for that matter, buying United States Steel, I think carries a certain symbolic weight with it. And if you tell a bunch of guys who are living just outside of Pittsburgh that the buyer of a company that they've worked at, their fathers worked at, their grandfathers worked at, and more, it's going to be snapped up by a Japanese company, you know, their reaction probably is like, whoa, okay, wow, how did we get here, right? And so I think even if you said it was a you know, a European company, which we've seen, uh, you know, yeah. ArcelorMittal bought a lot of American steel mills. Um, I, I just think it comes with a feeling, right? And a feeling isn't something that we can capture in numbers or something that we can mm. capture in data in the Bloomberg terminal. It is yeah. something that we have to capture through stories and telling mm-hmm. the voice of those people. In the old days, it could be political. The Democrats would have supported it and the Republicans uh, would have or the Republicans would have supported it. And the Democrats might have rejected it because they're worried about jobs. It's all different now. Everything's completely different. Uh, Can we expect similar action on aluminum coming soon? 
well, uh, and, and other companies buying aluminum companies. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, Alcoa's got its own issues right now uh, in Western Australia on their bauxite mines and getting approval and licenses for those that they had expect. I mean, they, they, they didn't ever expect to have trouble with. Um, I, I haven't heard talk of that, but listen, everything is up for sale at all times, right? Especially yeah. commodities. <laughs> And everything's up in the air. And Joe, we appreciate coming in and spending some time with us, uh, even when we don't know, you know, all of these questions and exactly where they're going. Joe Doe there with us, Bloomberg Metal and Mining Reporter. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Fred Newman joins us here in our studios in Hong Kong, Chief Asia Economist and Co-Head of Global Research for Asia at HSBC. Fred, thanks very much for coming in. You know, we cover macro conditions a lot on this program, uh, but on a day like today and yesterday, uh, the Fed and interest rates and in China, geopolitics, all that sort of uh, gets pushed to the back burner. The earnings from NVIDIA and uh, how it projects to other companies, uh, how does that sit in the overall environment for growth, let's say starting in the U.S.? Well, it's a reminder that we still have booming sectors. It's not all doom and gloom that you might sometimes think. You have clearly investment needs in the AI space. But we should remember that's very narrowly focused. So if you think about the Asian tech supply chain, for example, it's very specific companies in very specific segments that benefit. If you look at the overall electronic sector, actually it hasn't really lifted just as much. If you look, for example, at global new orders for consumer electronics, they're still down. The smartphone sector the laptop sector, for example, not really coming up. It's very specific, that AI-related investment. And that's, of course, NVIDIA benefits and, and other companies in supply chain. But, you know, for broader growth in Asia, for Asian exports, one-third of which are electronics, to lift, we need more broader demand to come through. So I'm going to get a little philosophical here. Broadly speaking, Fred, do you believe artificial intelligence has the potential to create disinflation? Um, it, it has potentially, yes. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily uh, all positive. Uh, so we know there's more investment coming in. We know there's no servers being installed at the other, on the other side. And we still need to see that. To what extent is AI starting to slow down the hiring of workers that would originally have been used in, in AI, for example, right? Yeah. So that, that's, that's an open question. I don't know the answer. There's certainly productivity gains. But long-term technology is there. You can't really prevent progress. But sometimes these introduction of new technologies Technologies can be quite disruptive for the labor market. And that obviously introduces uncertainties as well as opportunities and potentially then in, in the next few years might actually uh, curb job uh, wage growth, for example. <laughs> yeah, some of the most dour people I know are economists, Fred, and you're fitting that bill today, <laughs> highlighting the negatives there. <laughs> I wouldn't have become economists if it wasn't yeah, dour. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's good to have a sober uh, mind in, in our midst um, because sometimes things run a little crazy. Uh, we talked about the huge expansion in NVIDIA's market cap today being one and a half times Intel. I mean, I, I still find that very hard to get my head around. But on the positive side, and I think that's what, what really the market's responding to, is some of those productivity gains, how AI has the potential to change the way we do business. Uh, and it's very hard to actually compute that at the moment. 
That's right. We, we don't know yet, but the potential is there. It's absolutely breathtaking. And ultimately, that's what gets even dour economists excited <laughs> is when you talk about productivity yeah. gains. And, you know, that ultimately, human prosperity is driven by productivity. And if we have new technology that drives that, that, of course, raises the specter of the next 10 years, we might see enormous gains in economic growth driven by the application of AI. And there's other good stuff happening in the world as well. If mm. you look at uh, self-driving cars, if you look at uh, biotechnology, for example, we're not at a stand. Still, this is not the end of uh, you know global growth as we know it because we have these breakthroughs in technology. However, uh, it can be disruptive when it's being introduced, and I think managing those social consequences, making sure that technology is safe, is very important. And, and I think that's that's a broader public interest. I think to make sure that we develop these powerful technologies in the safest way possible. I was looking at a story just now in the Bloomberg Terminal: a money manager at Fidelity International has sold the vast majority of his holdings in U.S. Treasuries from the funds that he oversees because he believes that the economy still has a lot of room to grow. I think he's primarily thinking here of the U.S., but when you think about where we're headed in the rates environment right now, we had at least four Fed officials today urging patience when you start to talk about rate cuts. Where are you right now in terms of growth vis a vis uh, Fed rate cuts? Well, you know, we, we've said for quite some time, it's it's the Fed may ease, but it may be a much more shallow easing cycle than the market had expected even a few year, a few weeks ago. And if you look at growth in the U.S., it looks like it's going down perhaps to trend, but that's still pretty strong growth overall. Um, we, we would point out, for example, not only with the data overnight pretty strong, initial claims down again, for example, but also U.S. households are still sitting on very large wealth gains. If you look at what's happening with NVIDIA, mm. uh, with the stock market overall, that's a big tailwind still for U.S. consumption. And so uh, it's not entirely clear that really heading to that hard landing and whether it's really the all clear and inflation, I think we need to be very careful in this. Fortunately, the market has wound back its expectation. We're now to June instead of March. Mm. I think that sounds that's about where, right. That's where you are too, June, right? We, we are June yeah. as well. Yeah. But um, look, I mean, some, some, you know, when we talk to clients, um, some people are now asking, could the Fed even hike rates again? Uh, it's not entirely inconceivable. It's not our base case. Maybe slightly more likely is they just don't move this year. Um, what do you think of, of that probability? That, that it could be as well. I think the, the, the right now the data flow suggests less rather than more. And so uh, the more we have one more month of strong data, one more month of sticky inflation coming in, um, why would the Fed necessarily rush into rate cuts? So far, things are going well. Then we have the U.S. election coming in as well, and they may not want to move too closely before that as well. Ten seconds. So, last question. Did the big gains that we were seeing in the equity market suggest that there is still too much liquidity in the system? Yeah. Well, um, you know, there is still liquidity in the system, but Too liquidity much. is in the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> liquidity is a state of mind. I don't know whether, uh, you know, that's that's uh, one of my professors said, it's a state of mind. If if and, and the state of mind is bullish right now. So there you go. Yeah. You got liquidity. But can I sleep well tonight? <laughs> you can sleep moment? well. Yes, okay. it's Friday right. night. Everything's so okay for the moment. Well. Yeah, hey, the weekend approaches. Frederick, thank you very much for being with us. Frederick Newman, HSBC. This is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
Well, a huge trove of documents has turned up at the global security site GitHub, owned by Microsoft. The documents appear to outline China's state-sponsored cyber attacks on foreign governments. Joining us now to discuss this in detail is Sarah Jung, Bloomberg China technology reporter. So there are so many interesting angles to this, Sarah, one of which is that this vendor, iSoon, uh, from which a lot of these files uh, emanated, uh, is just one of many, many different vendors uh, that take part in this alleged program. Exactly. I think that exact point is why the global cybersecurity community has been so excited about this kind of leak, because it's the first major leak from this type of Chinese cyber vendor. And it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into this broader ecosystem of vendors in China that work with government clients and procure this kind of data, potentially from foreign government targets, and provides that for the Chinese government. So from what I'm reading in the Bloomberg piece, the origin of the files are unclear, but experts do believe they are authentic. Have we or has there been any reaction from Beijing at this point? So far, there hasn't been. We've um, had reporters asking the Chinese foreign ministry at their regular briefings, and they they claim that they're not aware of this, and they say that they oppose all types of cyber attacks. Um, in the past, we've seen the Chinese government be increasingly vocal about how they are actually a victim of Western hacking and deny all state-sponsored hacking. Um, so, but but we are looking to see as as this gains more attention and traction among the named um, governments and companies in this leak, whether or not the Chinese government will will come out with more of an official reaction. One of the other interesting aspects is the widely diverse targets, uh, the different types of targets uh, that are brought up in some of these files. Yeah, exactly. So uh, a bunch of colleagues, you know, we were going through hundreds of files, almost 600 files, I think, if I recall. Um, And there are a bunch of different targets named. It's very diverse. Uh, A lot of high profile government targets, including even the NATO Secretary General. Um, We saw the UK Foreign Ministry named, the Royal Thai Army, a bunch of different governments and including companies as well. So I'm wondering, when you get away from the relation with Washington, D.C., and you're involving other entities like NATO or even the Thai army, I mean, really, in terms of damage control, there's a lot to push back against. Definitely. I mean, I think what is interesting is that no one is particularly surprised that governments or state actors are targeting other governments. I mean, I think that's something that's generally understood. Um, but but in this case, we are seeing specific details laid out about how these researchers are actually engaging in the targeting, a little bit of information about how much they're selling it for, um, and and just laying out in very clear terms that we are procuring this data and providing it to the government. So something that we already kind of would guess is happening and having it be brought to the fore. And what are some of the interesting comments that we're hearing from cybersecurity experts uh, who we've we've, uh, contacted uh, to comment on the story? I think what's interesting is that this is the first major leak of this kind from a cyber vendor that does this kind of attacking. Um, so they are pointing out quite interesting things about the, the what this shows about the operations of this particular vendor and maybe what it reveals about this broader market uh, just for this kind of data inside of China. Um, and there are also, you know, a lot of speculation about the origins of this, you know, what the person who had leaked this data is, is intending to do, mm-hmm. um, and then potentially what 
this could mean for the Chinese government. Will they have to answer for it? Will other governments that were named in this leak come out and pressure them as well? So you talked about visibility into pricing. How expensive or how inexpensive is it for this type of behavior? It's actually interesting because what experts are saying is that it seems quite inexpensive, especially given the costs that governments and companies, major companies, would put into cybersecurity defenses. Some of these massive databases of personal data were being hawked online, according to these documents, for you know just tens of thousands of RMB. So a huge price differential there. So you referred to it as a leak. We actually say in our headline, purported leaks. Uh, and I said earlier that you know it was unclear that you know maybe this was uncovered by someone, but it seems like it is a leak. And then it's really tricky getting at the motivation, isn't it? Definitely. And I think that's that's a good caveat to mention. Um, We have gone through the documents, but we haven't personally been able to verify all of the contents. But from what cybersecurity experts are saying, they say that it aligns with publicly reported information on these types of threat actors. And um, we had Mandiant, you know, a, a really big name in cybersecurity, a unit of Google Cloud coming out and saying that they believe it to be authentic as well. So the most surprising thing seems to be how inexpensive it is, not the fact that it's going on, right? Yes, that and then just the fact that, you know, we're seeing it spelled out in black and white that they have these specific targets and that we, you know, this this could be sort of the tip of the iceberg for what is actually going on in China mm-hmm. and the broader, um, you know, cyber attack ecosystem. Well, I suppose for, you know, the Ministry of State Security, um, you know, with with deep pockets, um, uh, you know, $278,000 is not too much, but that's one of the uh, charges that we saw, at least uh, in one of the stories, uh, Chinese customers getting a trove of information behind social media accounts and platforms like Facebook and Telegram for a quarter of a million dollars, which seems expensive to us, but for governments, maybe not so much. Sarah, thanks very much. Sarah Jank, this is Bloomberg. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen, and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.